Would you welcome Mr. Jeffrey Ryan Wall today? Wow. Thank you, Tyler. Welcome. So he is right. I do, I do like to ask a lot of questions, and I also like to embellish stories. Um, my wife uh, teases me a lot about that, but I am going to tell you a little story, and this is not embellished. It's about when I was growing up. I was an overweight child, husky, chubby, heavy, however you want to put it, that's what I was. So uh, I have a ton of funny stories about what it's like growing up like this. For instance, you never want to wear corduroy pants because they make that little <laughs> And you don't, want to, you don't want to draw attention to yourself when you, when you look like I did. Uh, one of the one story, when I was in middle school, we, I went to a, pro, pro, a large middle school. It was a junior high at the time. We had gym, and we had a swimming pool, and we had, swim, we had a swimming unit. And so they didn't allow you to bring your own um, swimsuit. You had an issued swimsuit. They were Speedos. Um, women, girls had them too. And they were color-coordinated to the size of the swimsuit. Everyone goes, oh, no. So the smallest were the col most colorful, red, orange, yellow. <clears throat> the largest were olive green, brown, and black. Guess who never got to wear the colorful swimsuits? This guy. So everybody knew what you wore. When I was 11 years old, we had, another, we had um, a tumbling unit at our elementary school. And... Why, why are all my traumatized youth about gym? I don't, I don't understand. It's, all about, it's always about gym. When I, had, when I was a, a kid, um, what would happen is uh, we would bring all the fifth and sixth graders and we would line them up along the gymnasium wall and so there's like 100 students there and there's mats in the middle of the floor and they bring out everybody and one by one you do your tumbling routine while the gym teachers sit at the head on the stage with their clipboards and their folding chairs call out your name, and then when you're done with your tumbling routine, they go ahead and call out your score, what you scored. What, what, what were they thinking? I mean, really, wh what were they thinking? So as I'm, it's my, I'm, I'm W, so I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. When they get to the Ws, they call it Jeff Wald, and I stand up, and I start walking across the floor, and this is what I hear. Boom, 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 boom. And all the boys are saying this, calling this out while I'm walking across the floor. And so as I start having hot tears stream down my face, I look up at the teachers, just begging for them to do something, and they're covering their mouths, trying to stifle their laughter. That was a really, really hard moment because I did my tumbling routine. Of course, it was just somersaults and back, back somersaults. That's all I could do. And as I went back and slumped against the floor, it was the first time that I thought in my life, God, where are you? And what did I do to deserve this? I don't know if you have ever asked yourself that question, but today what I want to do is I want to look at a book of the Bible that answers that question for you. It's the book of Hebrews. Now, this is really exciting because when we were praying in our circle this morning and Corey got up and mentions Hebrews 8, 
This is not by accident. Because as we were praying, Jen Rebo was praying, Lord, stir us up. It is that word right there. Provoke. Provoke us, Lord. Stir us up. We're going to take a 10,000 view, 10,000 foot view of the book of Hebrews. And then what I want to do is I want to zoom in to six verses. Verses that have meant a great deal in my life. So what I want to do is first, let's take a look at just, a, just an overview. And then what I want to do is I want to um, look at those six verses. So who wrote it? We actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We do know that he was articulate and he was Jewish. We also know that he didn't personally know Jesus. He mentions that. Could have been Apollos, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus. We actually don't know who it was. But we do know that he had a vast knowledge of the Hebrew culture and the law and the prophets or the Torah. When was it written? It was written around the mid-first century A.D. We know that because it's being quoted by other people later that century. And who were the recipients? They were followers of the way, and they were also Jewish. They knew the law and the prophets. They, they knew them very, very well. Okay? So he's writing to them. And so why is he writing? Because they're facing cultural pressure to bend under persecution. They are feeling it. To conform and adhere to the culture and slip back into their previous ways, into their Judaism, because it was easier. And they wanted to escape mounting pressure from other people, even though they knew the truth of Scripture and who Jesus is. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel the pressure of the culture weighing down onto you and to embrace the cultural values because it's easier? I know I do. So what I want to do is let's take a look at the purpose of why he wrote it. He's going to write, he's going to, he's writing to encourage them. He wants to talk to them and say, hey, you've got this. Hold on to faith. The first four verses are the thesis of his letter that he writes. It's kind of almost, he almost writes it more like a sermon. And he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much, much, much more excellent than theirs. So what is he saying here? Jesus is superior. He is God. He is God. And I want to point out two little phrases that he, he points out. He's the radiance of the glory of God. So if you can imagine God being the sun, that's, or sorry, God being the sun, S-U-N, the S-O-N is like the radiance coming off of that. It's the same nature, the same principle of that. He is God. And secondarily, he's the exact imprint of his nature. If you can imagine a ring with wax, and imprinting into that wax, he is that imprint, the exact same nature. That is 
him. That is God. This, these four verses are actually considered by many scholars inside and outside of Christianity. This is, it's actually one sentence in Greek. One of the most beautifully written sentences in all of the Greek world at that time. So, now, God has spoken to us by his nature. And so what I want to do here is, let's, let's take a path through the first 10 chapters. We'll take a path through the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. And there's lots and lots of themes that we could talk about. Heroes of the faith, we could talk about the warnings that he gives. We could talk about um, how superior Jesus is to all the other things. But I want to focus on one path through the book of Hebrews to get to where we want to get to. And that is that God's covenants have always pointed to a redeemer. God's covenants have always pointed to a redeemer. We cannot really understand the work and life of Jesus, let alone the reason he came without understanding God's covenantal love. So sin enters the world, and we know through the Old Testament that God's great and primary desire was to redeem his people to himself. After the fall, broken covenant, broken relationship, and now for the rest of the Old Testament, he is desiring to bring his people back to himself. God has always been motivated to restore men and women to himself, to know him and have unity and communion with him. That is his primary motivation. He wants to bring you into relationship with him. And so here's what he did in the Old Testament. He's bringing and restoring the people out of Egypt to the promised land. He's using Moses. And this is what the author of Hebrews talks about. He's using the judges to save his people from oppression, bringing them out of being oppressed by other peoples. He uses the kings of Israel and Judah to lead his people from the re to rest from their enemies. And he uses the restoration of Judah and Benjamin from their captivity to point to the fact that he is a redeeming God. The Old Testament is the message of how unrelenting, how never-ending, and constant and persevering the love of God for his people. To redeem him, them to him, despite the rebellion, despite the difficulty, God is maintaining his love for his people the Old Testament is not just a bunch of commands, it's not just a bunch of nice stories, but it is the overall picture pointing to the redemption of his people. And now, also in there, it's going to, oh, the promise of a redeeming Messiah, I forgot about that one. But here, the Old Testament, what Jesus called the Law and the Prophets, was given to us to reveal not only how he had been redeeming them, but how he's making a path for one person a redeemer. And we know that that is the person of Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, the God with us, who would restore all Israel, all nations, and we would be, all nations would be God's people, not just Israel, but all nations, all pointing to one person, Christ, a deliverer. And so we travel through the first 10 chapters, and we get to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all. He's the final sacrifice. There's nothing more that we need to do 
except for our faith in him. That's it. Jesus is the final, complete sacrifice for us. And even Jesus said, even that covenantal love that's always pointing, that covenantal love that's always pointing to this Redeemer, even Jesus said, that first covenant, it was necessary. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Ah, I've come to fulfill them. That's it. And so we have this new covenant through Jesus. All right. I want to talk about this song. How many of you know this song, Future Past? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to be honest with you. I cannot make it through this song without getting choked up. Like, what? Why, why would you get choked up at this song? So this song highlights for me the story of my life. So I'm just going to start at the, that second little paragraph there. All treasures and wisdom of things to be known are hidden inside your hand. And in this fortunate turn of events, you ask me to be your friend because you are my first and you are my last. You have to get choked up again already. You are my future and my past. My past is replete with followers of Jesus. I mean, I have ancestors that go way back that came over in the 1600s to, they were fleeing persecution to come over to, this, to Virginia to um, escape um, persecution. My great-grandfather was a church planter. My grandfather was, is an elder. He's 102. That's, that's him with my mom. My uncle was an elder. And I was asked to become an elder in this church. It makes me, it makes me teary-eyed, the fact that I am in a long line of, long line of uh, believers. You are my past. You're a part of my story, Lord. Thank you for being a part of my story. But you're also my future. This is my wife, Hillary. We've been married for 22 years and my six kids. Carter is 20, Kearney is 10, Tally is 7, Dallas is 5, Kira is 3, and little Benny is 20 months. They are my future. And so every time I think about it, I think about my grandfather and I think about my kids. I know that they are my future and I must be faithful as a, line, as a chink in the chain, a line that passes down through generations to be faithful, to pass on my faith. There is nothing that I can do. I can share, I can be faithful, I can share my faith with them, I can show them, I can model for them, I can exhibit for them, but there's nothing that I can do to make them believe, to make them walk out of their faith. And Jesus is the same, says the same to us. I can't make you believe, but I invite you to step toward me. So, there's this bridge passage in Hebrews that is my life, they're my life verses. It's Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. It's actually the capstone of the book of Hebrews. He has spent the entire first chapter summing up why Jesus is better, why Jesus did this, why he's the Messiah, why he's the Redeemer, leading all the way up until chapter 10. 
And he gets to chapter 10, and it reminds me of what I've inherited in my faith. And here it is. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's, let's highlight this here, since. Since this happened, since he did this, since there's nothing you did, but since it's because of something he did, now let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three things. Let us draw near with a true heart of full of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. So let's just sum this up. This is a lot of words. Let's sum it, let's sum it up. Let's go through each one and talk about each one. Here's the first one. Let us draw near to God. This is the new and living way, never before given before Jesus conquered death on the cross. We have this old high priest who sacrificed for us, but now we have a new high priest. So he invites us, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, not because of how we behave, not because of any of that, but because of what he has done. And so God loves us. He wants to associate with us, no matter what we've done, no matter what we said, no matter what we thought, what we think of ourselves. He wants us to draw with a true heart full of, in full assurance that you are assured he wants you. He loves you. He cares about you, and he wants to be associated with you. And so you know what he's asking us to do? Take a step toward him. Take a step toward him. He opened the curtain for us. He allows us to walk in. Let's go back to when I was 11. Here's a different story. How many of you know what film is in a camera? How many of you remember that? Okay. So here's, here's how it works. You get a roll. For those of you who are under the age of 25, okay, you get, a, you get this little roll and you stick it in the back of this camera. And then you kind of like close it and then you wind it up. You make you really careful. Then you get like mm, 24 shots, 36 shots, depends, right? Okay. You take your shot. You, you do it. Okay. Then when you're done, you wheel it forward. You open it very carefully, making sure that you, you make sure that you went all the way forward. You pull it out and then you put it in this little black canister, right? And you close it up. And then you drive across town, right? And then you take it to CVS, Walgreens. How about, how about the little hut in the, in the uh, corner of the parking lot at the grocery store? Like Photo Mart? Yeah, you did that. Then you wait three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go back, and you get a little envelope, and you open it up, and you pull out your photos, and three-quarters of them are overexposed. <laughs> it's awesome. Okay, so I uh, was baptized when I was 11. I made a decision for Jesus, and in our church, we went ahead, we 
dressed in a white long robe. It was really cool. I was excited about it. And then you are dunked in super cold water in front of everyone. And before this happens, before, before it happens, um, I was sitting in the pews, and my mom was up front. I don't, I don't remember. My dad was in the back. He was an usher. My mom was up front, so I'm sitting alone in the pew. And I look over, and my mom's camera's sitting there. And I'm like, huh. She wouldn't allow me to play with her camera before, so I picked it up. Mm. And I was like, I wonder how this works. So I just popped open the back and opened it up and uh, was messing around with it. I pulled, pulled out the film, looked at it. And I was like, and I shoved it back in, closed it up, put it to the side, didn't think anything of it, went baptism, awesome, did a great job. Go to the back, I'm drenched, I'm soaking wet, I'm wearing this white robe, and here's the thought in my mind. It's never going to get better than this. I am pure. I am washed with the water. I am sinless, spotless. That is what that I, it happened. And just as I'm thinking that, my mom opens the door and says, what did you do? I'm like, what? You, you, you opened the back. You overexposed it. It's ruined. Now I didn't get any photos of you. And she shuts the door. And I thought, it's screwed up already. <laughs> Lasted five seconds. But it's that belief. I struggled from then on with the belief that I have to win the approval of God. It's this roller coaster. First, I sin. Then I have shame. Then I beg God for forgiveness. And then he forgives me. And I get to start all over again, wiped with a clean conscience. And then I sin. And then I do it all over again. How many of you can relate to that? Oh, yeah. It's, I struggle with it all through my teens, all through my 20s. Until I came to this revelation, wait a minute, God accepts me for who I am. Hmm. We all know what it's like to win people's approval. I have spent my whole life trying to please the coach, the parents, the teacher, my friends at middle school, my friends in high school, just trying to fit in. We try to win the affection of our boss, of that woman, that man, celebrity, someone we respect, or maybe just someone in your church, just trying to win their respect. I want to fit in. I want to impress them. We do the same with God. God, I want to impress you. But God's love is different. It's backwards. It's opposite than that. So what he's asking us to do is, just draw near to me. You don't have to continue on the roller coaster. Get off the roller coaster and take a step toward me. How do we take, what does drawing near look like for you? Communing with God. What does that look like? He asked us, Jesus asked us, to abide with him. J.R. preached an amazing message last week about abiding in him. I'm not going to re-preach that message. You should go back and listen to it if you missed it. But really what it is, it's about that connection, that connection with Jesus. And here it is again. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Gaining, connecting, and drawing the source of life out of that vine, out of that, out of that vine. That is abiding. And so what does that look like? How is that played out? 
I'll just give some examples for me, and maybe you can relate. Maybe it's picking up your Bible with the intention of spending 10 minutes just focusing on knowing him. Not, not to get through it, but just to know him. How about choosing to really worship during, pick a song. Pick a song during the, during the worship together with us. And just really focusing on him. Not distracted by how great the drummer is, which I have a problem with. Because we have some great drummers. We have some great drummers. Um, not being distracted by other things going around your kids, but just really focusing on what's going on. Setting aside all distractions and just sitting in silence and asking, God, would you speak to me? Would you speak to me? Moving toward a godly man or a woman and asking them to speak wisdom into your life. Sacrificing for someone who needs hope or encouragement. Setting down a piece of media that you know is displeasing and you know it's not healthy for you and picking something different up that would encourage you, that would educate you, that would embolden your faith. Whatever it is, it's taking a step away from we know it's not healthy for us and stepping toward and drawing near to God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is let us hold on to our confession of hope. We are fickle creatures, and we get discouraged really easily. So the writer asks, says, hold on unswervingly. So I'm going to pick out two Greek words. How? Pekecho. We're going to hold on, grip, keep a tight grip, occupy, possess, or retain. And this, in this instance, what's referring to is a body of teaching. Don't let go. Snag on and hold on tight, because here we go. Don't let go of this faith that you have been, it's been passed on to you, okay? The second word, I can't pronounce this, ekline, ekline, however you want to say it, that which does not bend, that which is straight. It stays perfectly straight. So we're going to hold on to that very straight line that's pointed us in the direction of Jesus. It does not bend. It's stability. It's an immutability. So let's hold on to the words of Jesus without fear, knowing that God's going to come through with us. I know that I have a tendency to waver when it comes to things that the culture brings out at me. We hold a different faith than our culture around us. It's true. We do. We, hold di we have different perspectives. We believe different things. Okay? Here are a few. I'm not going to go through them, but there's a lot. We differ from our culture. Here's the first thing. Jesus, fully man and fully God. Holy cow. Why would you believe that? The resurrection of Jesus, there's no scientific proof that a man could be raised from the dead. That's just two. And those are specific tenets of our faith. But he's saying our eternal hope is in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. That's what we're holding on to right there. So, that's the second thing. The first, draw near to God. The second, let's hold on to faith. Here's the third. Let's provoke one another to love and good works. This is my favorite part. This is my favorite part. Again, the Jewish Christians that are receiving this word, extremely discouraged. They're feeling pressure from all around them to abandon their faith. And as a matter of fact, uh, the writer gives five warnings to not abandon their faith in the midst of this. Don't, 
don't run away. Hold tight. Hold tight to what you have, what you've been given. And it's increasingly true for us. But we have a higher calling. And he says, let us consider how to stir up love and good works. So stir up. Provoke. We're going to stir in each other. What does that look like? Provoke. To rise up to stir, to stimulate, to arouse, to call forth. That's what it means to provoke. And how do we do that? He gives two examples of how we stir up love and good works with each other. Oh, wow. That's a bummer. I, I take pride. I'm a graphic designer. And so that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't fly for me. Okay. Well, you'll just have to, I'll just have to deal with that uh, in, my, in my own heart here. Okay, so the first thing. Oh, that just bugs me. Okay, all right. Continuing to meet with one another. That's how we provoke one another to love and good works. Continuing to meet with one another. Okay, what does that mean? Community. Community. That's what provoking one another means to love and good works, continuing to meet with one another. You cannot express love and obedience to his command without gathering with others. You cannot effectively share your faith and your love for Jesus. It is fatal to your faith to not have other believers around you. It is fatal. You will let go of hope. Yesterday, I had the privilege of um, seeing Ethan Canny give his senior thesis for high school, and he had to present it in front of a professor, a principal, and a pastor. And in his, there he is over there, in the, in the way corner, okay, in his thesis, he talks about how important it is for the church, for Christians, to use media specifically photography and video in order to reach the lost and in order to encourage one another. Really funny. He could have gotten up here and preached this because this is exactly what I wanted to say as well. So we're going to talk about the history of communication, just a brief history. Okay, so the Romans developed in the Western world roads that lead out and the, and the gospel is spread because people are able to effectively deliver letters to different cities, countries, and continents. So, how is that message read? So, if I have, I'm the only one that can read, none of you can read, so I stand up and I read the letter, and you say, that was amazing. Would you meet with me next, meet with us next week and share more of that, more of that, more words? And you say, no problem. And that went on for a thousand years. We met together so I could convey information to you. A thousand years later, the advent of the printing press. Now, the Bible is able to be duplicated and copied and given to, oh man, does that, is, am I, <laughs> it's been able to duplicate so that you can get information and now the demand is risen to get the Bible, and we can read for ourselves what the Word says. And that lasts for 500 years. And guess what? You're in the middle of a new revolution. 
a different resolution, a different communication resolution. And that is the fact that we have at our fingertips so much more, so much more information. You can pull up a YouTube video and watch Hillsong Worship. You can hear amazing messages from awesome pastors all over the world. You can listen to blogs. You can listen to podcasts, endless podcasts. You can get all sorts of information about your faith. So, here's a question. You might say, convince me that I need to show up today. Convince me. Why do I need to be here? Because this guy's message is way better than yours, Jeff. And this, this worship is way better than this, in their opinion. Okay? Convince me. Why should I show up? And the answer is this. Let us provoke each other to love and good works by not neglecting to meet with each other so that we can stir each other up. We believe in this so much at Mount Helena. Ah, there we go. Love and good works. That we built it into our motto. Building community, living the mission. That's how much we believe in it. Because we know that my, my, this 30-minute this message probably isn't, I mean, it's going to affect you, and you're going to walk away, and you're going to think, oh, that was a great message. But you're going to be taking in videos, and you're going to be listening to media, and you're going to be meeting with other people, and all of your friends, and all of these things around you, we're going to help each other as leaders, as friends, to help curate that content, to know who to meet with, to know who to listen to, to know what to listen to, to know when to listen to it. And we're going to come together, and we're going to stir each other up to love and good works. That's why we're meeting. That's why we have community. So the question is, what is your heart and your attention drawn to? I love the fact that you're here this morning. Love it. I love the fact we need each other, don't we? We need each other. So last fall, I, uh, last fall, I noticed this guy that walked in. He's head to toe in camo. Camo hat, camo jacket, camo shirt, camo pants. I think even his boots were camo. Does anybody want to guess who that was? Jay Shirley? Where's Jay? Where is he? He's right there. Oh, and he's wearing camo again. So at first I didn't see him. Okay. But I walked up to him, and I was like, whoa. I mean, most people don't wear like a whole bunch of camo to church because they like camo, except for Jay, maybe. But I was like, so what are you up to? He's like, oh, well, I was out hunting this morning. Of course he was. And I was up on the mountain, and I enjoyed it, and it was a great time of communing with God. But then I realized, or I know, that I had to come back down off the mountain and be with the community around me. I'm like, you don't hear that. That's a very mature attitude from a very mature Christian. Because we could just say, ah, not a big deal. I'll, get, I'll hit it up next week. Not, not a big deal. But that's a very mature attitude. And the Shirley's are really, they are, they encompass what community is. Whether it's through taking youth out hunting, 
through their realtor business, through their life houses, through um, mentoring, just mentoring people, through marriage, through bringing people in their home, through how they treat their kids. It is, they encompass community. They inspire me for community. So let's continue to stir each other up to love and good works by meeting together. So I passed over it, but we're going to come back to it. The second way is we're meeting together. The second way is encouraging one another. Okay? So we're going to encourage one another. Encouragement doesn't take place in isolation. We're going to gather for mutual encouragement to stay firm in the faith by abiding in Jesus. And even when we don't feel like loving, what we're going to do is we're going to come and we're going to encourage, we're going to encourage people when they're discouraged, when the culture feels like it's pressing down on us, when we feel alone, when we want to embrace ungodly living, we need each other to encourage one another to do the right thing, to display care and concern for each other. So I want to break this down into two points. Wow, it just keeps going down and down. It's like this outline. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two ways that we can encourage one another. Here's the first way. This is the way that we normally think about it through positive support and reassurance. We're going to speak words of life into other people. We're going to get together, and we're going to speak into them. So when I was, um, first came to Mount Helena, one of the things that uh, I want to do is I wanted to jump in right away, and I want to start serving and doing. Okay, so I, what do you want me to do? I want to lead worship, stack chairs, do whatever. So I went to Brian. There he is. There he is. Brian, what do you want me to do? Here's what Brian said. I don't want you to do anything. Just knock it off. Just do anything. Here's what I want you to do. Why don't you do what Proverbs 18 says, a man who wants friends must himself be friendly. Why don't you just be a friend to people? Why don't you just start speaking encouragement into people's lives? Why don't you invite people into your home? Why don't you invite them over for dinner and get to know them. Okay, now I know what to do. <laughs> so then Hillary and I started inviting people, and we had people in our home like twice a week, three times a week, just inviting them over. And we started getting to know people, and we allowed people to speak into our life, to get to know their story, and to be encouraged, and to encourage them. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about, this positive support, this reassurance, getting to know people so that we can display care and concern for one another. That was a big deal. That's a big lesson for me on how to encourage. But there's another way. This way isn't as fun. It's through reproof and warning. The author of Hebrews actually does this. And he talks about, he gives five warnings in his, in his little uh, message. But let's talk about the definition of reproof. It means a censure, a rebuke, or a reprimand. How many of you like censure, rebuke, and reprimand in your life? Not a whole lot of hands. Okay, I don't like it. It hurts. It stings. So, quick story, the book of Proverbs. I used to think that the book of Proverbs was a bunch of different verses that were nice, pieces of advice, and they were just kind of scattered around. They were all, they don't really have anything to do with each other. But actually, if you read, just read it as a book, just read the whole thing through, there's actually these lines, these themes that go through. Here's, here's one of the biggest themes. 
You can learn how to be wise or you can learn how to be a fool. Okay? So it actually lays out, do you want to be wise? Here's what you do to be wise. Pay attention, you'll gain knowledge, then you'll get understanding, then you'll get wisdom, and then you'll be righteous. That's how you become wise. But he also lays out, how do you become a fool? Okay? Here's what you do. Don't pay attention, then you won't have any knowledge, then you won't have any understanding, and then what you're going to do is you're going to mock people that actually do have understanding or try to correct you, and then you're going to become a fool. That's the pathway to wisdom or foolishness. But through it all, how do I become wise and how do I become a fool? It's reproof. I accept reproof or I don't. I listen to people who are wise or I don't. I reject it or I bring it into my life and let it grow me. Here's just a few verses. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Do not destroy the Lord's discipline or be weary of the reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instructions despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. And my favorite, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> okay. What does reproof look like for you? For me, that means that I listen when I screw up or that I'm out of line or I'm out of bounds or I have a, something in my life that needs correction. I am willing to invite people, godly men and women, into my life and help guide me and lead me through life. Boy, 11-year-old Jeff wishes with all his heart that as he was walking back and slumped against the, the, the wall, that there would have just been one person that came and sat down next to him and put their arms around him and said, hey, I love you. Don't listen to that. Don't believe the lies that people are telling you or that you're telling yourself. You are valuable. You have what it takes. That's the encouragement that we need in our life with reproof, with encouragement through positive reinforcement. So, coming in for a landing. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good works by continuing to meet together and encouraging one another. We need one another. We need community. You need to be here. I don't know what that looks like or how often or whatever. There's no, I, there's no golden nugget rule how much you have to be here. How many people do you need in your life? How many people do you need to speak into your life? But he's asking, let's take a step toward him. Let's hold on and let's let people walk alongside of us while we're doing it. And that is why that's my life verse. It's because that speaks to me in my life from my past to my future, it's that golden thread through the life of Jesus Christ, I have that. So I want to ask you three questions. And I want you to think about this. I give assignments because I do marriage mentoring and I also teach classes. I'm a teacher. So you get an assignment. Here's your assignment. Ask yourself. Number one, what's one thing this week that I can do to take a step toward God? Just one. If 
you need to write this down, feel free. If you need to get your phone out and, and type it out, do it. What's one thing this week that I can do to take a step toward God? Number two, what's one belief that I hold preventing me from stepping toward God? What's causing me to lose grasp on that unswerving, unwavering hope? What's one belief that I hold preventing me from stepping toward God? And thirdly, who is one godly person that I can ask to speak encouragement, both support and reproof into my life? Do you have that person? Do you have a person, any person, anyone? How about three? Maybe you have one. How about another one? Because we can't have too many people because we need each other. I need you guys. I need you to speak into my life. I need, I need your support. I need your love. My family needs your support and love. And I know you guys do too. Three things this week. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the before, the since, since this is, since the reason that Jesus came, I want to give you an opportunity to do that as well. You have the opportunity to submit your life so that you can walk through this life and be able to draw near to God. So what I'd like you to do is stand with me, please. There will be a prayer team up here to my right and your left. If you want to talk to anyone, if you want to talk to someone, they are available to pray with you, to love you, to encourage you. If you want them to reprove you, go ahead and ask them. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your, for your life-giving message today. Thank you for your blessing. Thank you for showing us how much we need you and your son, Jesus. You're so good to us. And thank you for giving, thank you for giving other people to us who can help us walk through this life, even through discouragement, even through persecution, Lord. You give us people. You give us your people. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks through us today. We love you. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.